Lord, open up your Bibles to Isaiah 48. And um, so we're coming to the close tonight of the subsection between, of, of chapters 40 to 48 uh, of Isaiah's prophecy, where the main focus has really been on, you know, the Jewish exile in Babylon and on God's promise to physically, to rescue, to deliver the nation from its well-deserved punishment, right? From its discipline. And uh, that is the consequence of their faith, faithlessness toward God because of their wanton idolatry, because of their hypocrisy. And so throughout it, we've seen, as I mentioned last week, the character of God put on display for us, right? Like when we're reading this, we're not just, you know, reading the, the, the events that surround this, you know, the, these exiles, but, but the text describes to us these, the wonderful character of Yahweh, right? And, and, and that he's the God of glory and majesty, that Though he is beyond full comprehension and understanding, yet he is always speaking and he's always revealing himself, you know, to his people. That he's the creator of all things. That he's highly exalted above his creation. He's the omnipotent God who never grows weary. That um, he's the God who strengthens and upholds his people by his righteous right hand. Praise God he does that. That, you know, he is the one that is the God of divine punishment and discipline, but he's also the God of grace. And he's the God of forgiveness. And he's the God of, of restoration, right? He's the Lord who, who, you know, will not leave his people in captivity. He's going to deliver them. He's going to do so so that they'll rebuild the nation and the temple. And they must because it's through Israel that will come the ultimate servant of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? Who will save his people from their sins. And so we're coming now to like the, the final um, chapter regarding the situation of, of, you know, the Jewish exiles in Babylon. At this point, from this point on, we're not going to read about Babylon again. We're not going to read the name of Cyrus again. Okay, this is the, the close of this unit, chapters 40 through 48. So let's read chapter 48 together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dig into this text tonight. Hear this. O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in tr- truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old. They went out from my mouth and I announced them and suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. You've heard. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You've never heard. You've never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously. And that from before birth, you were called a rebel. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake... For my own sake I do it, for how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Assemble, all of you, and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer. The Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. 
Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we turn our hearts to hear this word, I pray, Father God, that we would, um, that we would understand the heart of what you are saying in this text. And Father, you would unfold your word to us in a way that is profitable, that is for our understanding, and Lord God, that is for our upbuilding and edification. Father, I pray that this would not be some dry, dusty time in an old book, in an ancient book, but instead, Lord God, this would be a time when we hear the word of God and our souls are stirred by it. Father, I pray that Um, you would do the work in us that is necessary by your word without any embellishment, without any, you know, false enthusiasm or put on show by the preacher. Instead, Lord God, let your word speak to us. Let me be an instrument in your hands, Father, an honorable vessel for your use. Fill me with your spirit. And I pray, Father God, make the hearts of everyone in this room sensitive to your word and to receive it, God, with gladness and with um, thanksgiving and with an intent, Lord God, not only to hear it, but, Father, to meditate upon it and to obey it. Thank you for this time that we have together. Bless this word, Lord God, to the nourishment of our souls. Bless this word to the nourishment of our souls, for it is your word, and it is the word of truth. We bless you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this text that we're looking at tonight, beloved, we find the Lord's final appeal, really, and warning to those who are yet unbelievers among the exiles. That's what this text is, okay? Here's the reality. We've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again. There were really only, really was only a small remnant who trusted in the Lord in Babylon at this time, um, who held fast to His Word, who looked with expectation and anticipation to the promise of deliverance from captivity, and even more, who trusted in the promise of the future Messiah who would redeem the people of God. There was that small minority, but the vast majority of the Jewish exiles still remained rebellious in their hearts. They, um, they were still dismissive of the Lord. They were still practicing the very same sins, right? Idolatry and, and pride that their forefathers had practiced and which had led them into the exile to begin with. They bucked at God's discipline. They, they graded at his, 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 you know, his purpose for them in the exile. They, they disliked, you know, the, the idea that God would redeem them and rescue the nation from Babylonian captivity and that he would do so through a pagan king, Cyrus. Like they just, the vast majority of the Israelites just, they couldn't come to grips with that. Like it just wasn't right to them, you know, as if they had a say. And so, you know, Now, that didn't change anything regarding God's plan. I mean, obviously, it didn't change anything at all. He was still going to deliver them in the way that that he saw fit. The nation was still going to be repatriated. But here's the issue. A change of address does not equal a change of heart. I'm going to say that again. A change of address does not equal a change of heart. Physical rescue doesn't equal spiritual salvation. And that is, is, is what is at the heart of this final appeal and really this divine warning in chapter 48. These words really are not primarily intended for the faithful remnant, though we can learn from them, but they're for those who drew near to God with their lips and yet whose hearts were still far from Him. Okay, They would be repatriated, but, and here's the key, to return to Jerusalem did not equate to returning to the Lord. And really what's at issue here, when you read the text carefully, is that they still obstinately refuse to hear the words of the Lord. They refuse to hear the words of the Lord. They, they refuse to hear, and specifically the idea of that Hebrew word is, is to receive and to respond with humility. 
and to respond with faith and with obedience to him. That failure to hear, to really hear God's word, is made evident here by this common refrain that we see repeated over and over again. Hear this, verse 1. Listen to me, verse 12. Assemble all of you and listen, verse 14. Draw near to me, hear this, verse 16, and oh, that you had paid attention, right? What was desperately missing from their hearts was hearing God and then responding in repentance and faith towards him. So here's what's going to happen. We're going to look at this chapter. It really breaks down into two sections, okay? Very simply. It breaks down into two sections. In the first section, the Lord describes their still obstinate hearts. He describes their still, you know, just rebellious nature, right? And their sinfulness, their recalcitrance, right? And he declares to them that their deliverance is not because of anything in them. It's not because they deserve it. It's entirely because of the sake, for, you know, it's entirely because of his glory and for the sake of his glory. And then in the second section, verses 12 through 22, the Lord's going to call them to repentance yet again. But he's going to end with this final and unassailable declaration. Okay, verse verse 22, that there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So let's look at this. Let's look at verses 1 through 11. First, let's let's get this picture of the recalcitrant recalcitrant hearts and then the glory of God. Look, look at this word again, beginning in verse one. Right. Read it with me. Verses one and two. Hear this, O house of Jacob who are called by the name of Israel and who come, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. For they call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. So what's the Lord saying here, right? What's, what's the message here? Well, a couple of things. First, I want you to notice by this varied expression of using Jacob and Israel and Judah, the Lord is, is, is indicating that this message is for the whole of the nation, right? And it really applies to the entirety of their existence, right? Jacob's the one who becomes Israel, right? From Israel, you know, you have the, 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 the tribe of Judah. And so this, this encompasses the entirety, really, of their existence as, as a nation. Outwardly, outwardly, you know, these, these Jewish exiles seem to show the signs of faith and covenant relationship to God, right? They, for instance, they swear by the name of the Lord, right? Um, they confess the God of Israel, that is... They give him praise. Okay, that's what that means. They, they see themselves as the citizens of the city, of the, of, of the kingdom, right? And they claim to stand fast with the Lord, indivisible with the Lord, right? But here's the issue. It's all a sham. It's all a sham. It's all hypocritical make-believe. It's all going through the motions without the substance, right? It's all like swag and, and, and no substance. That's the point, right? The reality of their lives gave no evidence, true evidence of really being the people of God. Their religious proclamations are not in truth, and nor are they right. And the idea is this, is that their lives are marked by insincere words, right? Insincere words about the Lord and unrighteous actions. And as we're going to see described here in a little bit, it's because they're stubborn and treacherous and rebellious. In other words, here's the picture, okay? Here these guys are, they've been in captivity, and their old sins still live on. It's like their captivity has taught them nothing. And he's very direct, the Lord is, in his words. He gets to the very heart of the problem. Look at verses 3 and 5 again, 3 through 5 again. He says, The former things I declared of old, they went out of my mouth and I announced them. Then suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Because I know that you're obstinate and that your neck is an iron sinew and your forehead brass, I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you, lest you should say, my idol did them. My carved image, my metal image commanded them. Look at what God is saying here. Okay? Get, get the idea of, of what he's saying here. And, and it's got to grieve the divine heart. Looking back to his actions regarding Israel in the past, everything that had taken place in the nation and to the nation up until this new thing with Cyrus, the Lord says of it in essence, look, I predicted all those things and then I, I brought them all to pass. I spoke to you in playing language and then I suddenly brought them to completion because I know what you're like. I know what you're like. I did this so that you couldn't give credit to the idols that still consume you. At heart, you are idolaters yet. That's the idea here. Their character as a whole. Again, remember that there is always a believing spiritual Israel within national Israel, but their character as a whole, as the nation, their character had never really changed. Right? I mean, how long was it before the nation of Israel was pursuing idols? 
just across the Red Sea, right? At the foot of Mount Sinai. Didn't take long at all. I mean, they didn't, God didn't even have like a honeymoon period with them that lasted a year or anything. It was that quick. Right? They never really changed. They were obstinate, he says here. Stubborn, hard-headed, headstrong, right? They were stiff-necked. They were like donkeys. They refused to be led as if their necks were composed of iron. They were just incapable of submission to God. And, and their foreheads were like brass. It's kind of an interesting statement there. It's a, it's a Hebraism that can mean a couple of things. You either describe animals that butt each other's heads, you know, like, like rams do, right? Like you're like rams, you just butt heads all the time with me, right? Or it can mean or it can describe a person who's opinionated or closed-minded. Someone who, you know, is self-confident and who thrusts their face forward, you know, in pride and in arrogance and in brazen insistence on their own way. At the heart of it all was idolatry. God predicted and performed the things of which He spoke so that unbelieving Israel could not give credit to their idols and their carved images and their metal images. Now imagine being the exiles hearing that, right? That's, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Pretty confrontive. Uncomfortable, painful even. Sometimes we treat it like, you know, the Word of God should all be roses and sunshine and, and, you know, unicorns and rainbows. And that's not the case. You know, I remember seeing Joel Osteen one time. Not not that I was like in his congregation or anything. I remember seeing him though getting interviewed, you know. And he's like, I don't talk about sin because people know they're sinners and they feel bad enough. I just, when they come here, I want them to leave better. I want them to leave feeling better about themselves. And I was sitting there listening and I thought, A, people don't know they're sinners. They don't. B, the goal of church is not for people to just leave feeling better about themselves. Like you've been to a Tony Robbins, you know, convention. The goal is that you leave with a greater vision of the glory of God in Christ. Right? And that, yes, you're rejoicing. And yes, you are glad and grateful for God's saving and shepherding hand in your life. But you shouldn't be going out of church beating your chest over how great you are. (laughs) Or you haven't been to church. You know... The issue is, these unbelieving exiles were in a precarious position, whether they realized it or not. They were blatantly refusing to hear what the Lord was saying. How then could they ever come to repentance? Right? Unless you're willing to be corrected, how do you ever come to repentance? Unless you're willing to hear the hard truth, and then, you know, the, the, the bad news, and then the good news, how do you ever come to repentance? Right? You only come to repentance by squarely facing, you know, and they would only come to repentance by squarely facing the blatant contradiction between their words and their actions, right? Between their professed faith and their actual idolatry and unbelief. And so, you know, the Lord says, beginning of verse 6, look, you have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? He's saying in essence, look, you've heard the prophecies. If you open your eyes, you'll see that everything that I've spoken to you through the prophets has been fulfilled. In fact, the very existence of the nation of Israel was the fulfillment of of God's word to the prophets from Abraham to the present, wasn't it? And that truth was right there before them. And they needed to believe it and they needed to declare it. They couldn't just sit there and ignore the truth that, you know, they owed their existence and their continued existence to the faithfulness of God to his word of promise. It's the only reason they were still breathing. If they refuse to see God's faithful and continued care for the nation of Israel throughout its history, right? Then then they were going to remain faithless in the face of these new things that God was doing. Specifically, His deliverance of the nation from captivity by a means they didn't happen to like. He continues saying this, verses 6-8, look at it. From this time forth I announce to you new things. Hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them, lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. 
you have never heard. You have never known. For from of old, your ear has not been opened. For I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth, you were called a rebel. Now, I want to make sure we understand um, the heart of what's being said here. Okay, these new things that God's announcing, they're not new to God, right? It's not like God was in heaven, Israel goes into captivity. He's like, hmm, I got to come up with something new. That's not what's being said here, okay? They were known to God all along. They simply were not revealed long ago. They weren't revealed to the nation of Israel. Though they were part of God's purpose, they'd been kept secret until this time. But why is that so? Well, well the Lord tells us. It's because of Israel's character. It's because of who you, you guys. If God had told them, think about this, if God had told them that despite their wickedness and sin, despite their idolatry, despite their, their forays, you know, into finding their security in the world and amongst the, the great, you know, movers and shakers of the, of, the, of the nations. If God had said that to them, I'm going to deliver you anyway, right? It would have led to two great problems. First of all, it would have caused them to boast and be prideful and therefore to live carelessly and be even more rebellious than they already were. Why? Because they would use the promise of God's deliverance as an excuse for self-exaltation and greater sin. That's what people, that's what the promises of God do in the hearts of false professors. That's what grace does in the heart of a false professor, right? It greases the skids for greater sin. But there's even more. He says, because of your treachery. That word, the language of treachery, is used in other places to describe unfaithfulness in marriage and the unfaithfulness of Israel to the Lord. Okay? In other words, it would have only encouraged even more spiritual adultery. Israel was an untrustworthy and an unfaithful spouse. In fact, he said, when he says, from before birth, you were called a rebel, that's just a pithy way of saying that rebelliousness was not just a phase in Israel's experience, but just a phase they were going through, right? You know, people sometimes do that with their kids. Oh, they're just going through a phase. Super disobedient, super rebellious. They're just going through a phase. You know how to end that phase real quick? Discipline. It's not that Israel's just going through a phase here. It was part of her very nature. So here's the, the big question, right? Like, in view of the Lord's intimate knowledge of Israel's stubborn tendencies to idolatry and rebellion, why had he not just simply abandoned them to their rightful fate? Right? Why, why is he going to go and do these new things to deliver the nation from captivity? Right? And he gives them a plain and straightforward answer to that question in verses 9 through 11. Right? Look at it with me. He says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now here's the deal. When the Lord entered into covenant with Israel, right? And made them his chosen nation for his promise, for his purposes in this world. His name, his reputation, became inextricably linked with them. Right? In fact, you remember that Moses presented this very argument to God when God asked him why he should not destroy Israel at Sinai and start over with him. After that golden calf incident. And he said to the Lord, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Make no mistake. Israel deserved destruction. Right? In our sin, we all do, don't we? But for his own name's sake, God did not cut Israel off. That is, he did not utterly destroy her. Remember, the, 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 the Hebrew expression for making a covenant is to cut a covenant, right? And so therefore, the punishment for disobedience to that covenant is to be yourself cut off, which is to be destroyed. But for his own glory, for the sake of his name, for the sake of his praise, 
so that he would not be viewed in the same light as all the false gods of all the nations, those capricious imaginary gods that, that brought destruction upon their people despite all their sacrifices and everything else, to preserve the glory of his name, right? Despite their faithlessness to the covenant, God shows himself to be faithful and he doesn't punish Israel to the ultimate. Instead, he demonstrates incredible patience and mercy. He demonstrates incredible grace to a people who did not deserve it. And he did it so that he would be seen as not only a judge, but a rescuer and a redeemer. He's not going to allow his name to be profaned. He's not going to allow his name to be sullied, even by the sins of national Israel. He's not going to allow his name to be spoken in the same breath as Bel and Nebo. Remember back in 46, as if he's anything like them. In fact, even in his affliction of the nation through exile, God graciously set a limit. Look at this. Look at those words again. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. What does that mean? Well, when you refine silver, you leave it in the crucible until all the dross is burned away. Not 50%, not 90%, not even 99%. You leave it in the crucible until every single bit of dross is burned away until it's consumed. Now here's the deal. If God were to do that with the nation of Israel, there would have been absolutely nothing left approximating a nation. You remember what the Lord said to Isaiah, right? At his commissioning in chapter 6, where he's pining over the deafness and the blindness of Judah. And, and like, the, you know, here you've got this mission, you're going to go and preach, but blind they're not going to see, and deaf they're not going to hear. And Isaiah's like, how long, Lord? Right? And what was the Lord's response? He said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Meaning, there's not going to be many. Had the Lord refined them, through affliction, until only the remnant remained, the nation would have practically ceased to exist. If Israel's sinfulness were to defeat the Lord's purpose, then sin gets glory over him, right? And if, if the people remained in exile, then the gods of Babylon would get glory over him. God's glory demands that he do what he has promised, despite the sinfulness of Israel or the imaginary gods of Babylon. And here God makes plain, again, it's not Israel's merit, and it's especially not her faith, because she's still faithless. That prompts the repatriation and the restoration of the nation. It's only because of God's concern for His glory, the glory of His name in this earth. And so having revealed this recalcitrant and unbelieving nature of their hearts, then the Lord makes one last appeal to them. One last appeal, one final appeal. He makes this one last appeal to the faithless Jewish exiles and he does it in a way in, for, with which we become really familiar, right? Throughout these last eight chapters, nine chapters. He says, listen to me, O Jacob, in Israel whom I called. I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Again, look at what the Lord does. He's calling on Israel to hear him, to listen and to respond. Why? Because he's the only real true creator. He's it. He's the one who does it by merely speaking the word because he's the only and one true God. He commands everything by the word of his power. Everything he declares, it comes to fruition. He was there in the beginning. He's there in the end. He's eternal God overall. His power is limitless. And he's not worthy to be compared to the gods of this age. And therefore, his word is to be heard and it's to be believed. And he continues, look what he says. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them, who among the gods has declared these things? 
The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Again, there's that word listen, right? Again, that's the whole problem. They, they refuse to have ears to hear the truth. And unlike the idols that the Israelites hold so dear in their hearts, God speaks words on which we can depend, even when they're surprising, even when they're shocking, right? And these next words are kind of shocking. Speaking of Cyrus, the Lord says, the Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon, and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him, and he will prosper in his way. Now, most of that is really no different than what the Lord has already been saying, right, all along about Cyrus, except for this one thing. What is it? The Lord loves him. What does that mean? And why would the Lord say that? Certainly... It doesn't mean that God loved him in a salvific manner because we know that Cyrus remained an idolater until the day that he died. The point here is to draw a contrast between Cyrus and Israel. And it is a sad one. The Lord loves Cyrus in the sense that he approves of him. Because he hears the command of the Lord... And he does what the Lord tells him to do. No questions asked. He hears God's call. He carries out God's will. And the Lord prospers him because of his obedience. And he, a pagan, should shame the unbelieving exiles because his response to God's word, a man who had minimal revelation from the Lord was the polar opposite of them. He says this so that these unbelieving exiles might be cut to the heart. Like, get a clue, man. Right? And then in verse 16, we have this interjection by Isaiah. Isaiah jumps into it now, right? He's been speaking for the Lord, but now he jumps in. He says, look, draw near to me. Hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. John Oswald says of this verse, he says this. This is surely another case of the close identity between God and Isaiah. God has been speaking through the prophet from the very beginning. He calls the people to listen because all he has said in the past and how he has revealed himself in the events of their lives. And now, the prophet said, says, God is speaking again through me, whom he has inspired with his spirit. To be sure, God is saying some shocking things. But if past experience teaches anything, it ought to teach you to stop quibbling and believe what I, the inspired prophet, am saying. Listen to what I'm saying. And that leads perfectly into this admonition in verses 17 through 19. Look, he says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like its grains. Their name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. God's appeal here is very powerful. Notice he piles up statements about who he is, right? The Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the Lord your God. In other words, this is not just anybody who's speaking to them. It's the Lord of the Exodus. It's a kinsman Redeemer. It's, it's, he's the only being in the universe worthy of the title, Holy One. And his words. Man, his words are profitable for life. They are good and they are gracious words. They're not to be seen as some heaviness or some yoke. They're a gift from the Lord. And obedience to His Word infallibly leads to blessing. To refuse to listen is not only to defy God, but it is to carelessly and foolishly destroy yourself. They need to be forcefully reminded of this fact. Could they not see the problem? Look, they had refused to pay attention to the commandments of God. Their forefathers had. And where had it gotten them? 
They forfeited the peace like a river that they could have known. Peace is a constant reality. The peace as those covenant people of God who live under His righteous rule. They had, you know, had they listened, they could have experienced a blessed life of conformity to the character of God. The joy of, of righteousness among them and, 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 and in dealings with one another. Had they obeyed, Israel would still have been a large nation in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be like the sand of the seashore. That promise had been realized once in the reigns of David and Solomon, but the exile dramatically reduced the numbers belonging to Israel and Judah. Their offspring should have been blessed. It's only because of the will of the Lord that they had not been cut off and ceased to exist. There could have been such rich blessing for you if you had just paid heed to my words. That's what the Lord's saying. And then he says to him, Go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth. Say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Well, what is this? On the surface, certainly this is a call to come out of physical Babylon, right? To prepare for the day when they were going to flee Chaldea and when they were going to return home. When that time came, be ready to go, right? They were to believe God's words of promise and and they were to proclaim it to the world with a shout of joy, not murmur it in unbelief and indifference. They were to celebrate their redemption and know that just as God had once delivered Israel from Egypt, He would do so again from Babylon, right? Think about it. You know how it is. Like, let's say you go through a trial, and during the entire trial, all you do is grumble. All you do is complain. All you do is murmur, right? And then you come to the end of this trial, you come to the end of the affliction, and God delivers you out of it. What real testimony have you given to the Lord? None. You've given no testimony to the Lord. None at all. All you've done is exposed how really unbelieving your heart is. And how, you know, untrusting of the Lord you really are. Right? You complain through it all and you missed it. You missed the opportunity to magnify the glory of Almighty God. Right? Same thing here. But here was a bigger problem. They would be delivered. But, right, even though they were unbelieving, they were still going to be delivered. Plenty of unbelieving Jews went back to Jerusalem. They were going to be delivered. But in their unbelief, they would miss the greater redemption. Because here's the thing. Beneath the outward call here is a deeper one. The real issue, again, is not their physical location. It's the condition of their hearts before God. And so this call to come out of Babylon and to flee from Chaldea is at its heart a spiritual call. It's a call to faith. It's a call to repentance. It's a call out of idolatry to be more than simply a physical, nominal Israelite but to become a spiritual one, right? A change of of scenery. Listen, it does not and it will not ever produce a change of heart. That's why you can't flee far enough from sin and and, and, and escape its clutches. You can't because wherever you go, guess what? There you are. And if you're not transformed, if you're not changed... You bring along the same character you left with. Leaving Babylon, they're not going to leave behind their character or their hardness of heart. Listen, they went into captivity because of sin and most of them remained faithless, unchanged, and unreformed. And it continued throughout the history of the nation. And we see it when Jesus came, right? How few responded to Him. Now, praise God, you know, for the, the power of the gospel. You know, once, you know, Christ is crucified and raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, the spirit of, 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 of the living God is poured out upon his people and we become witnesses in, in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the earth and the spirit of God empowers our witness and the gospel goes forth and people get saved. That's a work of God's grace, right? But the character of Israel as unbelieving and hardened of heart, and that's just who they were. That's who they were. They might come back to Canaan, but that's not going to be enough. They, miss, they have to come back to the Lord. Because a change of address does not equal a change of heart. Simply leaving Babylon physically was not salvation. And that's why this section ends with this clear and self-evident truth of verse 22. Some guys, some commentators are like, clearly this was added at another point. 
Why? Why do you say that? Did you not just read the 21 verses before it? There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. You're not going to find peace in your wickedness. That word wicked is a broad word. It indicates those that are hostile to God, that are guilty of sin, that are at odds with God, right? That, that you know, unbelief and straining against the hand and the purposes of God, setting oneself against His truth and His revealed will, minimizing your sin is, is listen, it's no small thing or a minor peccadillo that God just, oh, overlooks. Although God would, would uphold the glory of His name by bringing the nation out of physical captivity and bringing them back to the land, they would never know true peace unless they repented and trusted in the Lord, in His Word, and in the promise of the Messiah. That was it. And again, this is the last warning they get. That's not to say that you know, the rest of Isaiah was not read to them. You know, the, the sections that begin next week with... The, Again, further unfolding of the servant of the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is beautiful. I can't wait to get into it. I don't know how many weeks it's going to take us to get through it. It might take us a month to get through just chapter 49. But, but this is the last warning that they get. This last direct warning. It's the last time we hear about Babylon. Again, last time we hear about Cyrus. They need to listen and they need to listen now. So now we look at that, right? And, and we say, well, we're not those guys. You know, so... I mean, hopefully not, right? So, so what does this text mean for us? How do we read this text and then like, okay, how does this text profit me? Because it needs to profit us or we haven't really read it, right? right. So, so what does it mean for us? Well, let me just say a few things. When we look at the modern church in America, I don't think it's too difficult for us to draw the lines to chapter 48. Is it? It's not. Now, I'm not being all doom and gloom, right? And I'm not saying we're the only faithful church left in the world. We're not. Right? That's not what I'm saying. But the lines are clear. I want you to think about this. How many churches, big and influential churches, or churches that want to be like them, how many of them consistently disregard the authority of the Word of God and the simplicity of faith in Christ? I mean, you remember Paul's words to the Corinthian church, don't you? When he said, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 3, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. What's wrong with you? Get a clue. How many churches? Think about it. How many churches are led by men who claim to get new and special revelations from God, right? They get this word from the Lord that only He can receive. Like, nobody else can receive this, just me. And God has given me a special word for you today, right? And what they do is this. You know what they do? They set themselves up as a modern-day Nebo. Remember Nebo? The one who was the revealer of the will of God to the Babylonians? They set them up as a modern-day Nebo, the false god of Babylon, like we saw back in chapter 46, who supposedly wrote the tables of destiny for the Babylonian people. You have guys that, on the regular, get up. I've got this word from God. It's your destiny. Let me tell you about the destiny of the church for the next year. The destiny of the church for the... I'll, I'll tell you about the destiny of the church the next year. You want to know what it is? Here's the secret. Here's what we're going to be doing next year at this time. Preaching verse by verse through a chapter of Scripture, pleading with the Lord to speak with His voice through it, and seeking to conform our lives to the commandments of the Lord. Amen. Think about it. How many churches, beloved, if we think about it, how many churches are dismissive of God's Word, right? And they find ways to distort and confuse the true teaching of Scripture in the name of love. How many professing Christians live lives utterly inconsistent with the truth and the righteousness of God's commandments? How many modern Christians reject the plain teaching of the Scripture by faithful preachers, right? Because they don't like it. Paul told Timothy, you know this verse well, these verses well. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Beloved, that time's not coming. That time is here. 
We need to guard our hearts, right? When we read this, we need to guard our hearts, and especially as we see the great apostasy taking place around us. It's happening, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You remember, the Lord Jesus said that He wasn't going to return until the great apostasy and the revelation of the man of sin. Great apostasy is here. So how do we do that? Well, we need to make a commitment to hear and obey the word of God without equivocation or evasion. It's not if the word of God speaks to me, I'll obey. It's when the word of God speaks to me, I will obey. There's no such thing as if. It's a when, right? We've got to determine in our souls to receive the word of God with humility, trusting not in our own understanding, but in the perfect revelation of God. Right? We've got to hold fast to and practice the words, the familiar words, right? Of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. I know people that are like, oh, my favorite verse is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, right? Their lives don't look like it at all. What's that say? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. We've got to make a commitment to hear and listen and receive the Word and let it lead us to repentance, faith, and increasing holiness before the Lord. Right? Irvin Businitz says this. He says, It's the word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the scriptures that bear witness about Christ. It's the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. Desire to be relevant or current must not prevail over biblical authority. Through the knowledge of the word, the Spirit of God convicts, directs, and strengthens for Christian living. He's right. Beloved, we've got to hold fast the conviction that God's Word is complete, it's perfect, it's all-embracing and all-sufficient, because God is. And it's never going to need amendment or correction or supplementation or, you know, revision, and then live in the light of that truth. That's what we learned from chapter 48. Thoughts, comments, questions very quickly. That went long. Wow. It sounds to me like Yeah. Yeah, it is. Very much like that. Wit, where are you going? Um, this is a nerdy English teacher thing. But we'll bear with you. <laughs> Thank you. That's yeah. Uh, heart of love. It's a heart of love. Bear with one another. <laughs> it's interesting that God tells them to go out and proclaim this and what he tells them to proclaim. Uh, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them. So he uses third person plural. Yeah. Which is it makes it so when they say it, it is both true, but also it does not include those who are saying it. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Yes. It's a reference, of course, to the Exodus. But it's, it's the Exodus applied to them, but not really to them because they're talking about them in the third person. That's good. I like that. Somebody else? Anybody? Just, to me, one of the most tragic things in this whole thing is that here is the heart of the Lord desiring, so desiring to bless them. Yeah. To give them peace. To give them... Righteousness, right? Righteousness. And a life yep. that would be enjoyable, mm-hmm. truly, in the deepest sense. And... But he has to be, you know, he can't reward. He's gracious, but he can't do that. He can't reward unbelief. He can't right. reward disobedience. But his heart is longing to bless, you know? Yep. And I, th- I think sometimes we forget that. Yeah, the earnestness of God, yeah. of his heart towards, towards you know, sinner, it's, it's so evident here in 48, or chapter 48. It's like, why won't you listen? Why won't you hear? Why won't you, you know? Why, why are you content to be a part of the movement. You know? Why are you content to be... For us it would be, why are you content to be a part of 
the visible church, but not actually be saved. Yeah, yeah. And Calvinists are prone to lean that way if they're not careful with their own doctrines, uh, with the election, that God's not really pleading this way. Right. And it's very important to remember that this is so. This is his character. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to get a little skewed if you focused all the time on the Christian doctrines that they're true. But you get you can get a skewed uh, view of the invitations. Mm-hmm. You gotta have a whole view of God. You know when He says, "I, have no, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked." Right. All right. All right. Let's pray, and uh, then we'll pray. John, John, you pray for us, man. Dearly Father, I thank you for your promises. God, I thank you for promising to save all of those who in my son believe. Lord, like the song said, like we sang at the beginning, God, I thank you for never falling through, but for always carrying them out fully and completely outside of us. We don't play a part. You do it. God, I'm just so thankful for the way that you have bought and purchased us with your blood with this blood of your son Lord you have called us to be your church to be your people Lord to be the pillar and the buttress of truth so God I pray that we would be that I pray that you would keep your hand on this church Lord that you would cause us to grow in unity to grow in likeness to Christ Lord and that we would stand firm on the truth God that we wouldn't waver that we wouldn't turn to anything else we would realize that the word of God is always relevant because it lasts forever. Nothing else does, only our souls. So God, I pray that we would take this message and, and, and apply it to ourselves in a way that we can't, Lord, in, in a way that totally changes the way that we live, God, because our lives do not belong to us anymore. They belong to you. Lord, so I pray that we would live like we do belong to you, that we would be your loyal subjects, God. So, Lord, I pray that as we get ready for this Sunday, that you would continue to prepare our hearts for the word of God that's going to be preached. Lord, I pray that we would do our job in preparing our own own hearts by opening up your word, Lord, and meditating upon it and praying. You, Lord, I pray that you would just prepare our hearts, Lord, and that you would build this church. Lord, I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.